On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have the things in mind. Have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Great. Well, you might have seen um, this phrase on the back of old Land Rover Defenders, or on the front of it, One life, live it. Um, it was interesting, when I was walking back um, for lunch today, there was a bright green defender opposite our house with this phrase uh, plastered on it, one life, live it. I think it's a really clever slogan, I really like it. Um, apparently it's from the um, Camel Trophy event that Land Rovers can compete in. Um, and I love it because it's short, it's clever, it's catchy. We only have one life, don't we? And our time is short. And from the moment we're born, the clock is ticking. So how can we make the most of this one life that we're given? Now, I imagine that for people who came up with the slogan, the way to make the most of life is to buy a Land Rover Defender, pack it with camping gear, and go on a around-the-world trip. But the key question we want to grapple with at Real Foods over the next term is what does God tell us about how not to waste our lives? What, what does God tell us about how not to waste our lives? Land Rover want to try and convince us that part of living life well is buying a Land Rover. And maybe you're persuaded by that. But the God of the universe, the one who made us and who loves us, wants us not to waste our lives because he knows that the way we spend our life now will determine where we are for all eternity. The way we spend our lives now will, will determine where we are for all eternity. I want to spend the whole of this talk um, tonight trying to persuade you of one simple but radical truth that the only way not to waste your life is to spend it serving Jesus. The only way not to waste your life is to spend it serving Jesus. Another way of saying that is that we save our lives by losing our lives for Jesus. Now, to prove that to you, we're going to look at Mark's Gospel, those verses that Lydia read. And these are really central verses in the book of Mark. And we're going to build up the argument in three ways. We'll see first that Jesus Christ gave up his life for us. He's our salvation and his life also sets the pattern for us. Second, we'll see that he calls his disciples to 
give up their lives for him. And then finally we'll see that the only way to save our lives is to give up our lives. So let's begin by focusing on Jesus's life and ministry. Um, Jesus gave up his life for us. So uh, turn with me to Mark 8 if you've closed it. We're going to have a look at those verses together. Mark chapter 8, page 111011. Now if you are here at Real Feed last year, we studied the book of Mark over the whole year. And you might remember chapter 8 as a really key turning point in the gospel. Up until this point, Mark has been showing us about the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? That's the question that Mark has been asking. And we've learned a lot in chapters 1 to 8. We've seen that he is the son of God that he has authority to teach God's word. We've seen that he has authority to heal people. We've seen that he has authority over all creation. And we've seen that he has authority to forgive people's sins. And all of that can be summed up in this title that's used for Jesus, the Christ, Jesus Christ. That means that he's God's promised, anointed, long-awaited king, as we've been sort of thinking about in, in 2 Samuel, the one who's going to usher in God's kingdom fully and finally forever. Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Christ. And do you see as we come to chapter 8, verse, verses 27 to 29, um, the disciples seem to get it. Let me just read 27 to 29 again. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Do you see that many people misunderstand the identity of Jesus? But when the spotlight turns to the disciples, they seem to get it. They're spot on. Jesus asked that question that all of us here in this room need to grapple with. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? And Peter says, you are the Christ. It's like that moment in a whodunit story where finally the characters get it and the light bulb goes off. Peter sees that Jesus is God's king. But just as we're ready to celebrate this moment as great for the disciples, we see that Peter hasn't quite got it yet. Jesus now turns from his identity to his mission, from who he is to what he's going to do. And it's his mission that Peter can't wrap his head around. Have a look at verse 31. He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus is the Christ, he's God's King, but he says he's the Christ who's going to suffer and die. We see him speak plainly to his disciples, don't we? He's not hiding things. Verse 32, he plans to suffer and die and rise. And he also speaks with purpose. Do you see, um, as we were thinking about this morning in 2 Samuel, there is a divine necessity to his suffering and death. Do you see that in verse 31? It's not just that he will suffer and be killed, but that he must suffer and be killed. Did not the Christ have to suffer? That's what we're thinking about this morning from 2 Samuel. Did not the Christ have to suffer and die? Now for Peter, that sounds completely crazy. The words suffering and Christ shouldn't go together in Paul's mind. It's like, uh, in Peter's mind, it's like talking about dry rain or cold lava. 
You know, just that, I just can't wrap my head around that. It doesn't make sense. How could God's king, the eternal king that God has promised, be a king who would suffer and die? That's Peter's question. He was expecting glory, but he's hearing about suffering. What's going on? So he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus, tells him Jesus is wrong, get a grip. But this is where Jesus changes Peter's perspective and where he wants to change our perspective as well. Because Jesus then rebukes Peter in verse 33. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, Peter's thinking is satanic. It's opposed to God. It's worldly thinking. He wants Jesus to have all glory and no suffering. But Jesus' thinking is in line with God's thinking that there is no glory without suffering. There is no crown without the cross. Jesus must suffer and he must die. As Mark goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man, Jesus, has come to give his life as a ransom for many. His death is the way he brings life to sinful people like you and me, paying the ransom price for our sin and reconciling us to God. And so without the cross, without his sin-bearing death, there can be no salvation. That's why he says the Son of Man must suffer and he must die. So I guess the question for us is, what does that mean for Jesus' disciples? What does it mean if we want to follow this kind of king? this kind of suffering king? That's the question that Jesus turns to next because the Christ who gives up his life is the king who calls his disciples to give up their lives for him. I've been reading a series of books at the moment um, about Genghis Khan, the ruler of the the Mongol uh, empire in the 12th and 13th centuries. He was a man of huge personal ambition and ability, had an incredible hunger to conquer nations. And one of his priorities as a leader was to train people in the way of the tribe. And I've been learning about what that looks like. For example, if you wanted to be a warrior in Genghis Khan's army, I'm not sure if many of you have that aspiration here today. But if you do, you have to be trained in how to fire arrows at full speed while riding on horseback. And apparently the best moment to do that is when the horse's feet are all off the ground. And in that moment where all the feet are off the ground, it's the most steady. And then that's when you fire the arrow. Haven't tried it yet. They also had to learn the way of the cold face, which was uh, to, to have no emotions um, so that your enemies would be intimidated when you uh, sort of approached them. Every Mongol warrior was called to learn that pattern of life that was embodied in their leader, Genghis Khan. Now, I want to say that being a disciple of Jesus is very different in, very, in a lot of different ways to being um, in one of these warriors. That's good news. No arrows, no cold faces needed. But the similarity is that we are called to a particular way of life as a disciple of Jesus. There is a pattern. There is a way of life that Jesus has paved for us. And he calls every one of his disciples to walk in that way. Have a look at verse 34. We're going to spend a bit of time in this verse together. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a really helpful definition of what it means to be a Christian, Christian discipleship. 
And the first thing to see is that this life is not just for the select few. This is the Christian life. This is for every disciple of Jesus. If anyone would come after me. So it's not like um, the ski slopes, if you've ever been skiing, where you have the option of the black slope, which is the really hard one, or the red slope, which is a bit easier, or the blue slope, which is the ones that I enjoy going on. This is not what's going on, on here. Jesus is saying there's one way of life. This is the deal for one of his disciples. And then he's, he gives us three interconnected things about discipleship. Firstly, verse 34, a disciple must deny himself, must deny himself or herself. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you must deny yourself. Now, it's important to see, I think, that Jesus isn't saying deny certain things. So he's not saying that you must deny yourself chocolate or clothes or a Caribbean holiday. I mean, it might involve some of those things as part of our discipleship, but that's not what he's saying first and foremost. It's bigger than that, isn't it? He's saying deny yourself, not deny things, but deny yourself, your very self. One commentator writes, to deny oneself is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. To turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. It means that we refuse to recognise our own right to rule our lives and instead we begin to live with Jesus as our Lord. The disciple of Jesus says, my life no longer belongs to me, it belongs to Jesus. I no longer have the right to assert my right to rule. I no longer need to live trying to preserve my own ambitions. I'll hand over the reins of my life to Jesus, my life, my will, my all to him. A Christian begins to think that not how do I want to live, but how would Jesus have me live now that he is my king? This is a submission of our whole selves to Jesus. Now, I'll think about how radical that is in a moment, but let's just come to the second call for his disciples in verse 34. Not only do we deny ourselves, but he also calls us to take up our cross. Take up our cross. Now, again, we need to be careful not to water this down, I think. We sometimes hear people talking about their cross as things like an annoying neighbour or a lazy husband. You know, that's just my cross to bear. But that's to strip this call of its powerful punch. When Jesus took up his cross, where was he going? Well, he was going to his death. In a few chapters' time, he will very literally carry a cross, a wooden cross, up a hill to be nailed onto a cross in agony and shame. And Jesus is now saying, if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up, my cro- take up your cross. He's calling people to come and die with him, to be willing to give up your life for him. We thought the first one was extreme. We're getting more radical, aren't we, as we, as we go through. And living as we do in our, our Western world, I think it can be hard to come to terms with a statement like this. But consider with me the reality in other places in the world. For example, I read of a 20-year-old girl who, is in northern, who was in northern Iraq who posted a video of herself singing Christian hymns on TikTok earlier this year. She converted from Islam and was enjoying her newfound joy in Christ. She's just doing the most ordinary thing for a Christian, singing. She was the age of many of you here, doing something that you do every week. But soon after that video was posted, she was found dead. And the suspected murderers are her uncle and her brother. Just imagine this girl opening up Mark chapter 8 before her conversion to Christianity and reading Jesus' words. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. And for that girl, that meant the real possibility of death for Jesus' sake. 
It's a case for many Christians in our world that the decision to follow Jesus is a decision to die with him. And Jesus says that is the call. As we come to terms with Jesus' kingship, then we must deny our right to rule our lives. We must take up our cross with him, be willing to suffer shame with him and even to suffer death if that's what it comes to. Like those people we saw siding with King David this morning who were suffering shame with him like Ittai. Um, the Gittite. That's what we're being called to here. Third thing, verse 34, is that we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. It's a decision not to follow the ways of the world anymore, not to follow our own desires anymore, not to follow our own ambitions anymore, but to follow Jesus, submitting to his way, embracing his words. Tim Chester, in his excellent book, The Ordinary Hero, which I'd really recommend to you, I think it's on the back of the sheet as a recommended book, He sums up discipleship using five words beginning with S. Sacrifice, submission, self-denial, service, suffering. Sacrifice, submission, self-denial, service, suffering. I'm really aware just how countercultural those words are for us to hear tonight, aren't they? So much of our society, so much of our lives is built on this idea of preserving the self. Living for self, finding yourself. And people tell us that the way to do that is to look inside, to determine who you are deep down, and then to express that to the world. Listen to how theologian Carl Truman puts it. He says, the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. Authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. But do you see how different the call of Jesus is? He doesn't call us to find ourselves by looking in, but to lose ourselves in submission to him as our king, to acknowledge his lordship, to follow him in suffering and shame, and to die to yourself day by day as one of his disciples. This is the black ski slope of the Christian life. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now I wonder, what's your reaction to these words of Jesus? What's your reaction? My guess is that you're thinking a couple of things. Either this is really hard and really radical. How can I soften these words a little bit? And is Joe really telling me the truth? Or this is crazy. Why would I live like this? This is stupid. Now I wonder whether you're thinking either of those two things, too radical or too crazy. This is where the final stage of Jesus' argument comes in. Jesus gives his life for us. He calls us to give up our lives for him. But you might be thinking, why is it worth it? Well, this is where we come to the third point. We give up our lives in order to save our lives. So far, Jesus has given us this decision on the screen. Now we've got this decision. We can choose to save, save your life or you can choose to lose your life for Jesus. That's the decision. We thought about this in last week's talk, a binary decision, no middle way, no third ground, no blue ski slope. And in the next few verses, Jesus will show us why losing our lives for him is the most sane way to live. Just have a look at these next few verses with me. Let's look at verse 35. Jesus says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now this, these verses change our perspective on life now because they also put into the frame the future, don't they? Let's have a think about that first option on the screen, choosing to save your life. One Bible translation talks about hanging on to your life, hanging on to it. A bit like a child might hold on to a toy because they don't want to let it go. They don't want their sibling to get hold of it. We do the same with our lives, don't we? This is the person who chooses not to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and instead choose to live for themselves. And the result in verse 35 is plain. If we want to save our lives, preserve it, hang on to it, then we will lose our life in the end. Well, it should be coming up. Well, forget that diagram. You imagine an arrow going down. Something's gone wrong with that. Imagine an arrow going down. Um, you choose to save your life now and you'll lose it in the future. As Jesus says in verse 36, what good is it to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? We could gain all the wealth of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos combined. We could accumulate power and popularity in the eyes of the world. We could collect sports cars in a shiny garage in a country estate. But none of those things is as valuable as your soul. That's what Jesus is saying. Why would you want to gain all of that and lose your soul for eternity? Francis Schaeffer once said that we should let the rubbish dump preach a sermon to us. If you were to walk around a rubbish dump somewhere in our country, you'd see uh, flat screen TVs, you'd see rusty old bikes, you'd see cars ready to be scrapped, you'd see Armani clothes that are now worn and tattered. And Schaeffer said, let that be a sermon to us about where, this, where everything ends up in this world. But your soul, on the other hand, will last forever. Why hang on to your life when you'd only lose it for eternity? But of course, there's another path here that Jesus gives, isn't there? The path of losing our lives for Jesus in order to save our lives in the end. Verse 35, whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Here's the person who chooses not to pursue themselves or the world, but to pursue Jesus. The person who's willing to align themselves with the suffering Messiah, holding to his words, speaking his gospel, suffering shame as one of his disciples. The person who serves others rather than self, who lives for the glory of Jesus rather than the gain of the world. That person has made a wise choice to lose their life now in order to save their soul for eternity. Let me conclude just by returning to uh, that case that I put forward to you earlier. The only way not to waste our lives is to spend them serving Jesus. Can I? There we go. Now what do you make of that, um, having looked at Mark chapter 8 together? You might be here thinking, I need to submit to Jesus today for the first time. And if so, please do talk to somebody about what it means to make that decision. And if you have done that, if you have turned to Jesus as your king, what will it look like to live as one of his disciples? As I thought about that, um, a prayer came to mind that sounds quite unusual when we first hear it. It's a prayer that Augustine prayed, who was a fourth century bishop. And in his prayer, he prayed to God, whose service is perfect freedom, whose service 
is perfect freedom. It feels strange, I think, to have service and freedom used in the same prayer, but I think that captures the call that Jesus makes for his disciples. As we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, as we lose our lives in service of him, we actually find that we can be truly free to live the life that we were always created to live. So let's consider those two sides of the coin, a life of service and a life of freedom. Firstly, a life of service. If you've made that big decision to come and die with Jesus, to deny your very self as you follow him, then your life now is to be marked by ongoing service of Jesus and ongoing service of other people. And that mindset, if we have it, will affect all of the decisions that we make in life, all the big ones, but also thousands of small ones that we make every day. This is how Tim Chester puts it. He says, the way of the cross impacts both our big life choices and our small daily actions. It really does include both martyrdom and washing up. Some of us might uh, think we might do well in the big things, at least in theory, but we don't do so well in the small things. As I've thought about this passage this week, I think it's um, helped me to remember that every small decision we make to serve Jesus and to serve other people is a, is a mini death. It's a kind of mini death. It's a mini dying to self, isn't it? So that we might live for the sake of other people. And every time we make those decisions, there's a cost. If we take a meal over to a friend who is struggling, it costs you money and time. I was on the floor last night tidying up Duplo after a long day with the family and this, this verse came to mind just thinking this is a way I can serve my wife and my children and the people who are going to come for lunch today even though I'd rather be doing something different. It's a mini decision but a little death. If we stand up for Jesus in a conversation in the kitchen we, we might sacrifice our status and our reputation as we side with Jesus. If we commit to being at church every Sunday then we might have to give up our sports club or our lions. If we go overseas to serve the gospel, then we might have to deny ourselves a successful career here. If we give money to support the work of the gospel, that money can't then be spent on something else. There are a thousand mini deaths, aren't there, that we are called to make as we follow Jesus. And that is the pattern that Jesus calls us to. We sometimes say to our children as they go off to school that they need to remember the word joy. Jesus first, others second yourself last. That's Christian discipleship and that's the path to true joy. But as well as being a life of service, this life is also a life of freedom, a life of freedom. It's helpful to remember, I think, that everyone in this world serves something. Just think about your friends. Every one of them is serving something, whether it be money or popularity or a person or an ambition or themselves. And that's a slavery that grasps and strives for the world and it's never enough. People might say that theirs is the path of freedom, but it turns out to be the path of anxiety and dissatisfaction and misery. Whereas service of Jesus is true freedom. His disciples are free from the penalty of sin, free from condemnation before God, and now free to spend our lives for Jesus' sake, free to be generous, free to take risks, free to suffer shame for the sake of Jesus as we side with God's King, knowing that our identity is secure. And so the question I want to pose to you as we come to the end of this talk is, will you hear the call of Jesus to give up your life for him so that you might gain your, your soul for eternity? Will you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus?
Why don't we pray? Let's pray. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Father, thank you for reminding us from this passage how precious it is to know Jesus, to have our lives saved by him, so that we might save our lives for all eternity. Father, we feel that temptation to try and hang on to our lives today, to serve ourselves rather than Jesus, to please ourselves rather than deny ourselves. Father, thank you for this radical call that Jesus makes, a life of both service of him and also of great freedom. Father, please uh, help us to be like Ittai, the Gittite, who we saw this morning in 2 Samuel, who is willing to side with King Jesus in shame and suffering because we know that we will be with him forever and ever. Please help us to make that wise choice that will affect our eternities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.